It's the 26th of March, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, a lot of good news. Let's get right to it. A large registry in the UK looked at drug discontinuations, patients on methotrexate, on leflunamide, showing that many instances methotrexate discontinuations for either lab reasons, LFT reasons, were often a little bit higher. But I thought you'd want to know about the methotrexate numbers. And here are the numbers from this very large study. Again, 16,000 methotrexate-treated patients, about 3,000 leflunamide-treated patients. That's about 46,000 patient years of drug exposure. They showed that discontinuation for abnormal labs or severely abnormal labs was 42 per 1,000 patient years for abnormal labs and 6 per 1,000 patient years for severely abnormal labs. That's uh, And again, after the first year, those are the numbers for the first year, um, it, went, it was cut in half. It's only like 22 instead of 46, and it went from 6 down to 2.8 in the second year, and that's the rate per year after that. So the other issue, the other number was the odds of discontinuing the drug for methotrexate for severe labs was 1 in 169 patients in the first year and 1 in 352 patients for every year after the first. So these are somewhat um, encouraging numbers for a drug that we use so often. Another drug we use often, JAK inhibitors. A lot of JAK inhibitors, and the question is, it, how real is this VTE risk? Well, a nice analysis done by a number of people, including, I think, Sion Kim and Mike Weinblatt, looked at claims data from market scan and Medicare and Optum. So that's commercial uh, insured patients and Medicare insured patients. 87,000 RA patients. Let me count the ways. Uh, we're either starting a TNF inhibitor or uh, tofacitinib, and they look at the risk of venous thromboembolism. It's rare. It's less than 1 per 100. Uh, overall, um, when you looked at the risk of uh, a VTE between a TNF inhibitor and TOFA, the risk was not different. TOFA compared to a TNF inhibitor, yeah, the hazard ratio is 1.13, straddled one, no significant difference. Again, I think this is a real issue for people who are at higher risk of VTEs, obese, prior VTEs, um, very inflamed, as we've talked about in the past. But if, you, if you're not otherwise and older, if you're not otherwise at risk, the risk here is about the added risk of taking a JAK inhibitor on top of your RA risk is about one to two cases per 1,000. That's borne out in this claims data analysis by Weinblatt and colleagues. Two, actually, two or three interesting abstracts this week about the risk of infection in patients with vasculitis. The first one was a retrospective analysis of 162 ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, two-thirds GPA, one-third MPA. The risk of SIEs was 7.5 per 100 patient years, a little on the high side if you compare that to RA, where the risk is 3 to 9 per 100 patient years. Biologics, you know, 2 to 5 per 100 patient years. Uh, and it was certainly higher with um, cyclophosphamide, cyclophosphamide induction than with rituximab induction. Now, don't think that rituximab is much, much better. In fact, rituximab seems to have a fairly high SIE risk overall. I think it's in the next report. They say in this particular report, 162 patients, the risk of a serious infection event in SIE was higher in patients who are on plasmapheresis, dialysis, and those who started out with a high baseline vasculitis activity score, the BVAS, the Birmingham 
vasculitis activity score in the first year or at baseline. The next report was a study of 46 patients with rituximab-treated ANCA-associated vasculitis from two different clinics, one in Lund, Sweden, the other one in Mexico City, Mexico, uh, and showed that 24% of the population that they followed had a serious infection. Um, that's not good. That's 11.5 per 100 patient years. Um, the interesting news that 75% of these or three-quarters of these uh, occurred within the first year. And when you looked at the independent risk factors for SIE in all these patients, it's still only 42, but it's a good number. Um, the rituximab was a single um, independent risk factor for SIE. Now, you would imagine that patients going on rituximab for vasculitis are not going to be mild cases of vasculitis. So maybe rituximab is a surrogate marker for severity, but they did not go into that. They do know these patients were, were severe because amongst the 46, four of them died. And yes, they were all on rituximab. Uh, another analysis looks at uh, EGPA, Chartreuse-Strauss disease, 147 patients that compared um, the many therapies that they received in this particular cohort. 63 were treated with rituximab, 51 with mepolizumab, um, and um, omolizumab, another drug I'm not familiar with. Uh, were out there when they looked at basically comparison of rituximab and mepolizumab that looks like that remission and partial remission was achieved in about 75% of people on rituximab and maybe higher, maybe 88% of people on mepolizumab, suggesting that that uh, therapy certainly should be considered in patients with eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis. An interesting uh, tidbit that uh, that comes from the Room Now Live meeting from last weekend um, comes from Dr. Robert, Robert Wong, the ophthalmologist who lectured a great lecture on uh, uh, uveitis and B27. Uh, and one nice little tidbit was, did you know that drug-induced uveitis occurs? And you know what the leading offender is, the leading drug? You use a lot of it, by the way. Yes, bisphosphonates. Uh, it also happens with the immune checkpoint inhibitors um, and is part of that constellation. Also, a number of antiviral drugs have been associated with uh, anterior uveitis. So um, think about um, uh, bisphosphonate therapy when you're seeing patients who have uveitis. Uh, so the question is, we talked a lot about rituximab in the last few reports. Can you safely add rituximab to background leflunamide therapy in patients with RA? Well, this particular study um, looked at 148, 40 patients on leflunamide who were uh, in need of another therapy. And so they randomized half the group to receive either rituximab or placebo, and they stayed on leflunamide. And yes, the leflunamide group did better. Interestingly, the primary endpoint in the study, they wanted to see an ACR 50 at week 24, and it was not met. However, patients treated with rituximab compared to those on placebo, again, everybody's on a background of leflunamide, um, was significant at week 16, uh, the number is, survey says, um, uh, 32% versus 15%. And that was significant at week 16. However, they lost significance at week 24, whereas a 27 versus 15%. So almost, but not quite. Yet all other parameters for outcomes, including ACR20 and whatnot. So I do think that adding rituximab to leflunamide is a safe and reasonable option. There was no... Um, other major adverse events, but there were more SAEs, serious adverse events, with rituximab compared to those um, who were just on placebo, 20% versus 2%. So 
there was a nice study looking at the long-term benefit of steroids when given to patients with early disease. I found this to be intriguing because certainly we give steroids for their short-term benefits. In this study, not really. This is an early RA trial of 180 patients given um, early steroids, glucocorticoids, standard doses, compared to 294 who did not. And in their study, five-year outcomes showed no differences in outcomes for those who were treated with early steroids. Dash 28 CRP hack or pain scores were the same, whether you got steroids or not early on. They also said that there was no significant benefits as far as short-term outcomes in the patients who received steroids. Should we really not be using steroids in our patients? Can you survive without them? The ACR guidelines are strong against steroids, saying you should only use them for a very limited, as an exception rather than the rule, and only for a limited period of time. The UR guidelines um, showed that you could use them as bridge therapy. Maybe they were a little bit more lenient. If you want to see a nice discussion of that, look for it in the weeks to come. We have a nice lecture by um, Alan Matsumoto from Room Now Live where he can compares the guidelines between ACR and ULAR. And that's one of the issues that he does, in fact, go over. Uh, we do know that glucocorticoids can cause osteoporotic fractures. A recent report shows there's probably an additive risk if someone's on a PPI and uh, a chronic uh, glucocorticoids showing that, uh, that a higher than expected risk. It was a 1.6 fold higher risk when you were on both drugs together. And that was higher than being on either one alone. Uh, maybe there are a few very interesting reports that maybe the big news report of the week was the FDA rejecting the um, uh, application for a new drug uh, approval for tenizumab. That's the nerve growth factor inhibitor that's been developed by Pfizer and Eli Lilly. Um, it's 15 years in development, over 40 trials. Um, while the drug was shown to be significantly better, as an injectable drug given every two months, um, significantly better than placebo. It was not significantly better than non-steroidals. Um, and it felt that this drug maybe had too much risk and not enough benefit. Uh, and the REMS that was proposed by the company, I think, was unacceptable to the panel. This drug was presented in a day-and-a-half presentation, a long presentation, a lot of data to go over. They, it was presented to the Drug Safety um, Committee and also to the Arthritis Advisory Committee. Both were sort of uniform. They voted 19 to 1 against approval of the drug, and they cited, you know, not enough benefit, maybe a little bit too much risk, and really an insufficient REMS program to identify those at risk. So that kind of um, is out. I think that the manufacturer said that they were still developing the drug for use elsewhere. As you know, the big problem with the nerve growth factor inhibitors, uh, this one and other ones in development, is that there is this problem of rapidly progressive uh, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, meaning patients usually have grade three and grade four, Kelgren, OA of the knee or hip. They rapidly progress to destruction and, and then the need for joint replacement. On these drugs, the thought is that by being a nerve growth factor inhibitor, it um, impairs proprioception. That gives you basically a neuropathic joint, and the pounding on that leads to rapid destruction, uh, and patients go probably where they're going to go anyway, by the way. I'm not sure why this is a horrible thing, but it was horrible enough to keep this drug from being, in fact, FDA approved. Uh, we saw the publication uh, this past week of the recipe trial. We talked a lot about the recipe trial at ACR. This comes from Kana and colleagues at UAB. This was a small pilot study that looked at the use of mycophenolate in patients starting therapy with peglodicase. Peglodicase being used for refractory, tophaceous gout. Uh, and they put half the group uh, on 
or some proportion of the group on actually it was t two to one randomization to mycophenolate one to placebo as background therapy. The idea here being that taking pegloticase by itself is limited uh, with a lot of patients dropping out and having non-response by um, the development of anti-peg antibodies, which then interferes with the efficacy of the drug, which when you give pegloticase, the uric acid just plummets to like less than three or the bottom number, whatever you can measure in your lab. And it stays down until I get these anti-drug antibodies. And now because it interferes, you'll see the uric acid levels dry, rise up. And now that's the beginning of the end. That's a big red flag to stop the drug. Well, can you prevent the anti-drug antibodies with background methotrexate we reported on before, azathioprine I've used and others have used, and now mycophenolate is what uh, Ken Sag and the and Kana and colleagues at UAB have done. In their study, they enrolled, I think, 42. They treated 32 after um, they actually randomized 35. Uh, three were excluded. So 32 were in the analysis, and they did show at 12 weeks a higher percentage of patients on mycophenolate met their primary endpoint of uric acid of less than 6. That was 88%, 86% compared to 40% for those that were just on placebo. At week 24, again, the rates of, of response were greater with mycophenolate, 68 versus 30%. This appears to be a, a smart move in patients who you are going to start on case. Our last report is just a reminder report about the safety of paternal exposure to uh, conventional biologics and to um, um, conventional DMARDs and to biologics um, when the father is going to be the contributory um, partner to a future pregnancy. So paternal exposures to these drugs does not seem to impair pregnancy outcomes. In this study, comparing 74 500 almost uh, expectant fathers with inflammatory bowel disease, RA, spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, to those that were not exposed, almost, a, I think, a 4,000 group. And again, the drugs we're talking about were exposures to thiopurines, methotrexate, TNF, and non-TNF biologics, and they showed really no significant rate of congenital malformations over the background rate of the unexposed. The background rate of congenital malformations, and this kind of backed up by other reports in the literature about a uh, 3% uh, background rate of, of uh, congenital malformations. And then when you compare those different groups of therapies, the relative risk was about a little more, a little less than one. Uh, uh, confidence intervals overlapping one showing no higher risk of congenital malformations nor preterm birth based on congenital, uh, based on mater pater paternal exposure. And this is, by the way, uh, in, in incorporated into the ACR uh, reproductive health guidelines, basically saying while there are some cautions and warnings about moms and drugs that they can take, it appears that the fathers can pretty much take anything other than uh, cytotoxic agents like cyclophosphamide. That's it for this week. Make sure you send in your questions and cases. Go to Backtalk. You can find it on the daily email or on the website in the bottom left-hand corner. Click on it. Record your question in case we'll discuss it in the future. In the future, look for a lot of Room Now Live content. We're going to roll out, start rolling it out next week a little bit and the week after real heavy. we got tons of podcasts, tons of lectures, mini lectures, um, You know, great keynote address by uh, Dr. Ian McKinnis talking about um, it was the best of times. It was the worst, worst of times. It was not a recitation of Charles Dickens. It was a retrospective think piece about 
what we've learned during the COVID era and, and, and Ian has a really unique perspective and a really a fine lecture. Look forward to that in the weeks to come. Tune in for more on Room Now.